Today's episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by Physical Attraction, a new podcast that tries to explain physics one chat-up line at a time. Available now from wherever you get your podcasts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the astronomy podcast that we like to call Space Nuts. We were going to call it something else, but that was taken, which was um, Space as We Know It by Intelligent People. Uh, we, got, we got Space Nuts. But that's okay. We, it's we, be- we better fit. than Space Ache. Yes, exactly right. And uh, joining me as always, I'm Andrew Dunkley, by the way, your host, and Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Good day, Andrew. You, you didn't see the queue. You came in too early. I'm sorry. I, 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 was, um, I, I was too enthusiastic. Oh, that's I, okay. Uh, I just can't wait to talk to you. That's what it is. So. We, we like that. We like that very much. Uh, now, today we're talking about a, a video that's been released by NASA, which you can look at on the interwebs, uh, of a flight over Pluto. It's only a couple of minutes, but it's, uh, it's well worth looking at. Uh, gigantic jets over Hawaii. We're not talking uh, Dreamliners or A380s. We're talking actual jets out of cloudy things, which is their official name, and giant lava blobs that created Iceland and Hawaii. So Hawaii's sort of in the uh, headlines on both of our, uh, or two of our stories today. But first, let's uh, talk about this NASA video. Uh, the flight over Pluto, which uh, I've just had a look at, and uh, it's a nice sort of slow-motion representation of um, just coming over the, the from the dark side to the light uh, of Pluto. It's very, very clever and uh, fascinating too. Beautifully done. Mm. Uh, and uh, it underlines the new knowledge that we've gained uh, about Pluto since the uh, New Horizons flyby, uh, which this is a, basically an animation made from, the data that came from New Horizons, since that took place uh, on Bastille Day in 2015, July the 14th, 2015. Um, that extraordinary mission, uh, I think, ranks among the, the great uh, scientific enterprises and was basically done on a shoestring budget. Uh, and I had the great good fortune today, in fact, to meet uh, two of the scientists involved with it, including the principal scientist and the brains behind uh, New Horizon, uh, Dr. Alan Stern uh, of the Southwest I- Institute uh, in, um, in Boulder, Colorado. Extraordinary uh, stuff to see him uh, telling the story of New Horizons and Pluto. It's a story that's been well told, and certainly I've lived and breathed all that stuff um, for about the last decade. But to hear it from uh, the man himself was quite impressive. And um, he showed many of the images that we've become familiar with of this really amazing dynamic world. Everybody expected Pluto would be a pockmarked, uh, dead world that really had nothing going on there, um, just leftover craters from bombardment when the solar system was in its infancy. But what we found were surfaces that are very, very youthful, less than, certainly less than 100 million years old, probably in some cases less than 10 million years old, which uh, as in geological time 
is really just yesterday. Um, the one piece of information that fascinated me, Andrew, was a picture that I hadn't seen before of Pluto's large moon, Charon. Mm. Um, and Charon is uh, a world that is actually half the size of Pluto. It's a large object compare, comparable uh, with the planet itself or the dwarf planet itself. And, it, and, it's, and it's, it's so so big that it actually has the mutual center of gravity outside the body of Pluto. And so Pluto and its moon Charon actually spin around uh, a point that is just an, an empty point in space. It's called the barycenter okay. or the center, center of mass. And, and that defines them as being a binary planet rather than a, um, you know, a, a planet or a dwarf planet and its moon. Uh, Charon, though, is quite different from Pluto. It's, um, it is more heavily cratered. It's a different color. Uh, it's pretty uniform all the way around. Um, uniformly gray was how Alan Stern described it. But what surprised me, which I hadn't seen before, was a kind of crack around its equator. And it's not just a single crack. It's a, it's a system of canyons, of chasms, that basically run around the equator of Charon. And it struck me as being uh, something similar to a phenomenon that we see on one of Saturn's moons, uh, Iapetus. But what Iapetus has around its middle is not a crack or a depression or a series oh, a of ridge. canyons. It's got a ridge, that's yes, right, a yes. mountain ridge. Uh, but it turns out that um, they probably have something in common because we know that Iapetus's mountain ridge came about because... Uh, essentially, as Iapetus cooled uh, from its molten state early in the solar system, as it cooled, it contracted and it meant its crust was a bit too big for the for the size of it. So exactly, it buckled up into uh, a ridge around hand the hand gestures, just yes, in case hand gestures. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure your listeners saw them. I certainly did. <laughs> um, whereas, whereas here's the tricky bit. I thought this was really neat. Um, Charon has a large fraction of its material uh, being water ice. So it's uh, like so much in the outer solar system, it's made largely of water. And of course, water, as it cools, expands. When it freezes, it actually gets bigger. Mm. And so what it's done is split Charon open rather than formed a ridge, as has happened with the Apetus. It's split open uh, Charon to reveal this kind of set of uh, of canyons and and chasms all the way around its equator remarkable stuff uh Karen is rather more than a thousand kilometers in diameter uh as i said half the diameter of pluto a very interesting and important world one other comment uh while we're talking about Karen is that it's also got polar caps well it's got one polar cap we couldn't see the the south side of it when uh, when New Horizons flew by. We could only see the North Pole region. And that polar cap is unlike the rest of the planet, of the, the, the satellite, the, uh, the, the moon of, of Pluto, it's, it's, um, which is grey. OK, so Karen is mostly grey, but it's got a brown pole. The polar cap is brown. Mm. And the, um, basically the thinking behind it is that what you're seeing here is the effect of hydrocarbons from the atmosphere of Pluto itself. So this is gas from Pluto's atmosphere being transferred to Charon itself, uh, where it condenses out on the surface. And because of the effect of ultraviolet light from the sun uh, is modified. 
and it, it's modified to produce chemicals called tholins. And tholins are exactly the same brown color as we see at the Pearl of Charon. And that is the thinking behind what's happened there. These are all processes that are fairly well understood physical processes, but of course are happening at uh, temperatures which are way, way below anything we experience in the inner solar system. If I remember rightly, it's more, it's uh, colder than minus 200 Celsius. I think 220 or thereabouts comes to mind for the surface temperature on, on Pluto and Charon. And so the physics there and the chemistry are quite different from the things that we're used to here on our own planet. So, but, um, sorry, amazing stuff. Yeah, so given the discovery of the, uh, the, the, the water ice and the swapping of atmospheres and the, and the crack along the equator in Charon, basically what you're telling us is Pluto is giving Charon a universal wedgie. Uh, at least something of that kind, yes. It's, uh, it's a wedgie and a half, actually, <laughs> but it's a thousand kilometres divided, uh, sorry, multiplied by pi. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Nasty. All right. Uh, and, of course, if you want to see the, uh, the, the New Horizons flyover of Pluto, uh, just jump online and, and do a search for it because uh, it is well worth looking at. It's, uh, it's very impressive. Um, I suppose you call it footage, but uh, a, coll you know, a collection of images, I would imagine, that have been put together to create this, uh, this amazing flyover. You do, I think you do a full lap of the planet, if I'm right. More or less, yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now we're going to talk about something closer to Earth, and Hawaii will be in this topic and in the next topic for a completely different reason. But we're going to look at gigantic jets over Hawaii. Now we know it's a very popular tourist destination, and there are big jets flying in and out of Hawaii all the time. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about um, atmospheric jets, I suppose, for want of a better term. Uh, but uh, that's why Fred's here, because he's going to explain it. I'm just having a snowball's guess. So uh, what, what sort of jets are we talking about here, Fred? Yeah, exactly. Um, space jets, in fact, uh, and natural ones, not, uh, not anything created by humans. Uh, why do we know about these things? Well, because uh, Hawaii uh, is home to... Uh, the Big Island of Hawaii, which is home to the Mauna Kea volcano or dormant volcano, which is home to the Mauna Kea Observatory, which has some of the biggest telescopes in the world. And so they are equipped with very sensitive uh, cloud cameras. One of them, the Gemini telescope, uh, which is called Gemini because it's got a twin in the southern hemisphere in, in Chile. Uh, the Gemini cloud camera records uh, approaching storms and all the rest of it all the time. Uh, 24-7. Well, I'm sure it's perhaps only at night. But what they have often recorded uh, with the Gemini cloud cam is something, a phenomenon that's called sprites. And sprites uh, were first discovered in the late 1980s. And these are like upward pointing lightning strokes from clouds. So if you've got a cloud that's uh, a thundercloud and it's discharging lightning to the ground, uh, in the form of conventional lighting, the stuff that we're all familiar with. We now know, and it's been known since the late 1980s, that there are often upward-pointing strikes as well, coming from the top of the cloud. They're often red, and they're called sprites. That's the name that was given to them. Uh, they are relatively common. They've been uh, observed many, many times. You can often find photographs of them on websites that concentrate on 
uh, the sky at night, and there are many websites like that. But what the Gemini cloud camera uh, observed recently, this was uh, actually, uh, as, as we're recording this now, it was just a week or so ago, uh, was something that has a different name. It's called a gigantic jet. And it's like a sprite, but it's gigantic. So this is um, a bright flash that extends upwards from the top of a, of a thundercloud and goes right up to the ionosphere, uh, something like 80 kilometers wow. above ground. So, you know, the thunderclouds themselves might stretch up to 15 or perhaps 20 kilometers. But these uh, and, and sprites are not much further than that when you get sprites occurring there at lower levels. But this gigantic jet that was captured and others that have been observed, they've only been observed since 2002 or so, um, they actually are much, much uh, more you know, much more spectacular. Mm. Uh, so a very nice image, once again, on the Space Weather website, worth a look, an image of the gigantic jet over the mountain of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Um, have, have they figured out what causes these things? Uh, there's certainly a lot of work being done on it since they were discovered. I suspect the, the gigantic jets themselves are not really all that well understood. The sprites and some... Uh, a similar phenomena or related phenomena, some of which go by the name elves. Uh, there are elves and there's um, all sorts of other slightly odd-shaped things that seem to be associated with these relatively low-level discharges coming from the top of thunderclouds. I think the physics of those is pretty well understood. And if I remember rightly, uh, it means you have to have a cloud that is positively charged rather than negatively charged. Uh, and you can have either, but it's only the positively charged ones that release the sprites. Now, whether that is true of the gigantic jets, I don't know. Mm. And I'm not sure how much research has been done on this because there is uh, really, uh, you know, they're, they're rare. Uh, there are not many photographs of them and even uh, smaller amounts of other kinds of observations. So I think this is one that we'll hear more about as time goes on, but they Ah, very spectacular. The one that's uh, on the Space Weather website is really extraordinary. Oh, it's amazing. But uh, it, it also suggests that's a massive amount of energy being discharged. That's right, indeed. Where's it going? Out into space. Yeah. Uh, it's probably some sort of interaction with the solar wind as well, Andrew. You know, this wind of charged particles that comes in from the sun. Almost certainly some kind of influence from that too. Fascinating. And, yeah, great pictures, great photos. Have a look at them. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Let's take a break now and hear a word from our sponsor, the new podcast, Physical Attraction. Look into his eyes. They're the eyes of a man obsessed by sex. Disturbed? Concerned? Maybe a little bit intrigued? Physical Attraction is a new podcast where your host will attempt to explain concepts in physics one chat at line at a time. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on Twitter at PhysicsPod. See you soon. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Uh, last but not least, Fred, and still focused on Hawaii, but we bring Iceland into this particular equation as well. And they've recently announced that the reason these two places exist is because of giant blobs. <laughs> it's the technical term. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm sure so it is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, described as a, a reservoir of partially molten rock, described by scientists as a blob. Oh, there you are. Mm. Um, so this work really, I mean, we're kind of segueing loosely from uh, from our discussion about Hawaii because Hawaii, uh, the Hawaiian chain of islands has been formed and indeed are still being formed, actually, by the fact that there's a hot spot underneath the Earth's crust there. Uh, and um, that hot spot pokes through and actually uh, reveal, uh, it reveals itself by volcanic eruptions from the seabed, uh, which eventually poke mountains up higher than the seabed, and they're still being built as we speak. The uh, volcanic activity on the Big Island of Hawaii is, is very spectacular. Um, so that uh, turns out to be um, essentially uh, the result of one of these blobs. But the research that we're describing uh, actually relates particularly to Iceland. Uh, and indeed a phenomenon or, or an entity that goes underneath the surface of the earth, which is called the Iceland plume. Uh, and it's a plume of upwelling molten rock uh, that over the last few million years has created Iceland itself. Now, Iceland, of course, sits on the mid-Atlantic ridge. It's the, it's the boundary uh, between two uh, two plates, the, the Eurasian plates, two tectonic plates, that is, the Eurasian plates and the North American plate, and they are drifting apart at roughly the same speed at which fingernails grow. Oh, uh, wow. As the, uh, the volcanologist who comes with us to Iceland when we visit there tells us that that's how fast these two halves are pulling apart. That's it's actually a few, pretty quick in the scheme of things. It is. It's a few centimetres a year. That's yeah. right. So, um, so that, that's the two plates are drifting apart at that speed. Uh, but underneath that joint, there is this, uh, this blob, uh, this partially molten rock reservoir, uh, which is uh, something like 800 kilometers in diameter and uh, located uh, something like 2,800 kilometers below the ground. Uh, it's roughly 15 kilometres high, so it's like a big flat pancake mm. uh, that sits underneath uh, the region where Iceland exists and uh, basically allows the volcanic activity. Um, it's, uh, it's scientists actually at uh, the, the Berkeley Seismological Laboratory in California who've used uh, something called seismic tomography. It's the same as uh, computer tomography that we use to probe the inside of our bodies. But you can do that the same sort of thing with seismographs to reveal what is underneath the surface of the Earth um, and deep under the surface of the Earth. And they've seen these, these features, uh, which are uh, basically areas uh, of the boundary between the core uh, of the Earth and its mantle, and that, that's way, way down in the depths of the Earth, uh, that it turns out that uh, seismic waves from earthquakes go through these uh, this this area about 30% more slowly than uh, around the neighbouring area. That's how you know this thing's there, um, and they are quite rare. Uh, they're very deep, but they seem to be the cause of these uh, these blobs, <laughs> the the partially molten blobs that give rise to places like Iceland and almost certainly Hawaii as well. Mm. Uh, 
perhaps um, some of the Pacific Islands too. So maybe uh, Indonesia, perhaps. Yes, that's right. It could could well be that we've got similar things going on to our north here here in Australia. Mm. But uh, really interesting stuff. And you know. Um, is it is it to do with space? Well, the Earth is a planet. We, we talk about everything uh, that con concerns planets and uh, what's happening deep under the surface. It might be inner space, but it's still part of space nuts and what we talk about. V the volcanology of these places is very, very interesting and actually part of our understanding that leads us to, to, to basically understand how other planets in the solar system and beyond might work. Oh, yes. I mean... Uh, my wife and I are fascinated by volcanoes and we've visited a few on our travels and uh, stood right on the edge of a few, as you have too, uh, Fred. Indeed, yes. You don't realise the magnitude of the power of the inside of the earth until you're standing on the rim of a, an active volcano and you feel and hear and smell and taste what's <laughs> blowing up in your face. I mean, it is just awe-inspiring and, and absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's terrifying. That's right. Especially when, because you get these sort of burps of uh, really quite toxic gases, very sulfurous fumes. Mm. Um, and uh, I was on the rim of one volcano and uh, the guide said, oh, just turn you back to them. They'll be all right. They'll, they'll yeah, that'll fix it. That'll fix it. Yeah. it. yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> Mount Yasser was one we stood on. It's not a big volcano because you can walk up to the top of it mm. and it only takes five minutes. But, gee, it really is a busy little volcano, that one. And uh, we saw some amazing things. And I often tell the story of when we were um, standing up there, the wind changed and everything started blowing towards us. And the guide said, time to get off. You know, the lava yes. bombs, lava bombs, 3,000 degrees. And as we're yes. leaving, one of our group decided to lollygag a bit and stood and waited on the rim a bit longer, and there was this massive bang. And I had enough time to take my camera out of my pocket, turn it on, focus it, and take a photo before the lava hit the ground. Hit the ground, was, yeah. And I got her sort of standing by herself on the edge of the volcano with all yes. this stuff raining down. It's amazing. Okay. Was amazing. she okay? Yeah, she was fine. It didn't land on her, but I did see video later that a friend of mine took of a lava bomb landing in front of me, and I never saw it. Wow. Never saw it. It was 20 metres probably from where I was standing. There you go. You had a lucky escape yeah. uh, probing the inner depths of our planet. At yes, first indeed. Um, Kilauea, <laughs> I enjoyed that too. It's a completely yeah. different situation. It's um, yes. it's like a very sad old Labrador compared to Mount Yasser, but <laughs> in a That's nice right. way. <laughs> in in nice Labradors way. are nice. Mm, yeah. Very much. All right. Thank you, Fred, as always. And a pleasure to talk to you too. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks as always for listening. Don't forget to write, uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Uh, we certainly love your questions, your comments, your feedback, anything you'd like to, um, to, to convey to us please do. Don't forget to listen to our sister podcast, Space Time with Stuart Gary. Until next time, goodbye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.
Today's episode of Space Nuts was brought to you by Physical Attraction, a new podcast that tries to explain physics, one chat-up line at a time. Subscribe at all good podcast outlets.